With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SupChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. It's August, and as I'm sure all our listeners are keenly aware, the first seven days of August are International Clown Week. But while this week's episode may not feature any intentional slapstick comedy or juggling performances, or the sending in, for that matter, of any clowns, We'll still be trying to uh, make sense of the spectacle that is the world of business news in China. There have been calls for China to rethink its approach if it wants to retain foreign enterprises. Tesla has shaved off over 2000 US dollars from the asking price for its Model 3 car in China, and a crackdown on private tuition companies has been sending shockwaves through the after-school study industry. Here's your roundup of the week's biggest news. China's new ambassador to the United States, Qin Gong, has vowed to try to bring China-U.S. relations back on track. The veteran diplomat arrived in the U.S. last week on Wednesday. On arrival, Qin said he will work to realize mutual respect, equality, win-win cooperation, and peaceful coexistence between the two countries, which have been trying to re-engage in recent months as tensions remain high over several issues, including the South China Sea, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. The 55-year-old Qin is originally from Tianjin and has served as foreign ministry spokesperson twice and also emerged as a trusted aide to President Xi Jinping on diplomatic protocol. Also, in big news related to Sino-U.S. relations, the U.S. is now demanding further information from Chinese IPOs. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, will now require additional disclosures from Chinese companies seeking to sell stock in the U.S. According to the SEC, the Chinese government's restrictions on foreign listings and enhanced cybersecurity reviews are, quote, relevant to U.S. investors, unquote. The commission's chairman, Gary Gensler, asked the staff to seek additional disclosures from Chinese businesses about the risks of Chinese government actions that could affect company share prices before signing off on registration statements to float shares in the USA. A regulatory campaign aimed at tech and private tutoring companies began in July, prompting a sell-off of Chinese stocks on Wall Street. Losses by Chinese tech and education stocks since February have topped $1 trillion. That's according to data compiled by Bloomberg. 
In other major financial news, the manager of Hong Kong's largest and most popular exchange-traded fund, or ETF, has amended its prospectus to specify that U.S. investors will be barred from buying units in the fund from June 2022. The move marks the latest example of how global financial institutions are getting caught up in the financial decoupling between China and the U.S., State Street, which runs the Tracker Fund of Hong Kong, said units of the fund will not be offered or sold in the U.S. or to any U.S. persons. The new prospectus said that a U.S. person refers to any U.S. citizen, lawful permanent resident, and entity located in or outside the U.S. This week has also been a rather bumpy ride for Tesla. The company said it has lowered the price of its Model 3 electric car in China by 15,000 yuan because of reductions in production costs. Tesla said Friday that the standard version of the Elon Musk-headed firm's flagship vehicle now retails at 235,900 yuan after subsidies. According to the automaker, the move reflects the realities of cost fluctuations and Tesla's commitment to the principle of public transparency on pricing. Tesla did not specify which areas of its production chain had experienced cost reductions. A person close to the company denied that the price cut was related to a recent series of scandals and safety incidents that have dented the carmaker's reputation in China. China's former commerce minister says the country needs to make some policy adjustments if it wants to keep foreign companies. Speaking at an annual forum hosted by the Center for China and Globalization on Friday, the former Commerce Minister Chen Deming said that Beijing in particular needs to make progress on intellectual property protection, predictability of government policy, and favorable talent policies. He also said the preferential policies on land and taxation that helped attract foreign investments since the late 1970s have almost, quote, reached their ceiling. His comments come as foreign businesses in the Asian nation have reported difficulties related to the business environment and to hiring. Earlier this year, European companies in China said they had problems hiring skilled overseas professionals for their China operations because of the country's strict COVID-19 border controls. In June, a business confidence survey by the European Union Chamber of Commerce in China found that just over 40% of respondents believed business became more political in the past year and that there is, quote, growing concern, unquote, over further tensions during 2021. Moving on, the latest on the devastating floods in central China. As many of our listeners will know, torrential rain and flooding claimed dozens of lives in Zhengzhou, the capital city of Henan province. However, the disaster has also exposed flaws in local hospitals' emergency response systems. A power outage in the first affiliated hospital of Zhengzhou University, one of the city's largest medical institutions, caused more than 11,000 patients to be evacuated or transferred to other hospitals. Medical workers even had to use manual ventilators to help some patients breathe. One medical worker told Saixin that it took the hospital over 30 hours to transfer and evacuate the patients, of whom 600 were critically ill. Several other hospitals in Zhengzhou experienced water and power cuts from July 20th, when the record heavy downpour hit the Henan capital. 
Caixin has learned that hospitals normally formulate plans for different emergencies. However, these plans are more aimed at preventing incidents such as fires and infections from causing severe damage rather than mitigating natural disasters such as rainstorms and flooding. In other grim news, this week also saw a notable surge in coronavirus cases in the world's most populous nation. In fact, it's now gotten to the point where the latest wave of coronavirus infections is shaping up to be China's worst resurgence of the epidemic since January. On Sunday, the Chinese mainland confirmed 98 new virus cases with 55 local transmissions. Local cases have now been reported in at least 15 provincial-level regions. A significant number of these patients are said to have contracted the highly transmissible Delta variant. Many of the infections are thought to trace back to a flare-up in Nanjing, which was first identified on July 20th. The outbreak has raised concerns over whether China can quickly bring it under control. Zhang Wenhong, director of the Infectious Disease Department at Shanghai's Huashan Hospital, said that the outbreak remains controllable if no more cases emerge in other provinces in the next two weeks. Let's turn now to Caixin Company reporter Matthew Walsh for a look at the story everyone's been talking about in China, the massive regulatory crackdown on the education sector that's been sending shockwaves throughout not just that industry and its U.S.-listed companies, but well beyond. Welcome back to the show, Matt. Hi, Kaiser. It's great to be here. So, Matthew, what exactly are the new regulations all about and, and who do they target? Right. So these rules come from China's state council. That's like the country's cabinet and the Communist Party's Central Committee. And they emerged uh, on Friday, uh, July 23rd in Beijing. Um, Overall, the regulations herald these kinds of sweeping changes to China's $100 billion out-of-school tutoring industry, which employs millions of people and, broadly speaking, serves Chinese families who want to give their kids a bit of a leg up in the country's really competitive education system. Um, One thing the policy does is order local authorities to stop approving new extracurricular education businesses that offer tutoring in subjects that kids already take at primary and secondary school. But it also orders existing companies to re-register as non-profit organisations, which is a move that really changes their whole relationship to their customers and indeed to the state and society in China overall. So those are the kind of headline moves. Um, but there's a bunch of other other rules in there as well. Um, you know, there's a bar on foreign capital from entering the sector through things like mergers and acquisitions, franchising, or what are called variable interest entities. Um, there's a rule saying that existing after-school training firms will be banned from providing overseas educational classes or those that go beyond the standard school curriculum in China. And also education and tutoring firms won't be able to raise money through share sales um, while already traded firms will be barred from investing in those companies' stocks. What everyone is wondering, of course, and, and there are all sorts of theories out there, is why is all of this happening right now? Yeah, so I think the impetus behind these rules comes back to the government's long-term efforts to reduce the burden on its students and also to you know this broader ongoing regulatory crackdown that's been going on in China for the last few months. Um, On that first point, you know, Beijing has sought to ease the burden on primary and secondary school kids for quite a few years now. Um, They've previously, you know, experimented with adjusting the school curriculum and placing restrictions on how much homework schools can assign to children. 
Um, and the, the overall aim there is to take some of the pressure off these kids who, you know, as people around the world, I'm sure, already know, study more in China than in, in most other countries, right? Um, however, those efforts have also prompted many families to get ahead by seeking out these private tuition services. Some of these firms have previously and continue to operate rather unscrupulously, uh, for example, through false advertising or pricing fraud. So that's that's one problem. Um, but more broadly, these private tutoring firms have started to an account for an increasing share of household expenditure. And that's coming at a time when the government would prefer that consumers spent more on other things. And I think the last point that I would make with regard to reducing the burden on students is that, you know, I think there's also a certain symbolism, maybe, uh, to these to this policy as well. You know, private tuition is broadly speaking quite an urban middle-class oriented service in China. And some analysts have sort of speculated that the rise of these companies um, reveals the kind of ongoing inequalities that China has in its public education system. And just to finish off on the regulatory crackdown side, you know, this development comes at a time when Beijing is also waging this broader clampdown on companies, especially those that are listed overseas. Um, and the brunt of this crackdown has affected companies in the, the tech sector, you know, like ride-hailing giant Didi Chuxing. Um, and so, you know, the assault on education firms might not fit neatly into that category, but I also think it shows that the government is no longer particularly concerned about battering the fortunes of um, these these internationally listed huge firms in order to bring their operations to heel back home in China. And Matthew, what's been the fallout from this so far? And, and what's your sense of how this might end up reshaping the industry? Yeah, so as you might expect from a policy change as sweeping as that, the fallout has been pretty dramatic, to say the least. Um, so, I mean, it's wiped well over $100 billion off the market value of China's three major US-listed education firms, those being um, TAL Education Group, uh, New Oriental Education and Technology Group, and uh, Gautu Tech Edu. So those companies have seen their stock prices plummet. Um, and the move has also raised concerns that other companies that were previously rumoured to be considering listings, companies like Zhuoye Bang and Yuan Fudao, uh, may no longer go ahead with those in this new environment. Although I must add that neither of those two companies have spoken publicly about any mooted IPOs. Um, overall, the investment bank Goldman Sachs estimates that the crackdown uh, will shrink the size of China's private tuition industry to around a quarter of its current value, according to a report in the Financial Times. So that's one side of the effect of these these new policies. But overall, it's difficult to tell what the ultimate um, fallout from, from the regulations will be. But you know, it certainly seems likely that China's private tuition sector will dramatically contract. Um, but I'd also draw attention to how the fact that these rules don't really address the underlying causes of the demand that fuels this tuition industry in the first place, right? Those include things like a really highly exam-oriented education sector, um, a, a shortage of university placements, and wide disparities within China in terms of the quality of education that people can receive from the public sector. Um, so while these have had a very, very drastic effect uh, on the industry as a whole, there are underlying things in education, culture, and, and social culture within China that remain unaddressed by these policies. Matt, thanks for this really informed take on a very complicated and impactful turn of events. Uh, thanks for uh, for joining me to chat. Look forward to having you on again soon, man. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. 
The Caixin Sitika Business Brief is produced by Kaiser Guo and Nandini Venkata with stories from the staff of Caixin Global. Special thanks to Li Xin of Caixin Global. Thanks to Spring and Autumn for the music. Hear stories from Caixin Global, SubChina, Sixth Tone, and many other China-focused outlets on the China Stories podcast. And for daily news and views, make sure to subscribe to SubChina Access for the daily newsletter. Find us at subchina.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.